Spectrum's brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with an eclectic group of people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have fascinating stories to tell. Today we're talking with Dana Bowen Matthew, a lawyer, author, law professor, and healthcare analyst about her brand new book, Just Medicine, a cure for racial inequality in American healthcare. Ms. Matthew is a professor of law at the University of Colorado Law School and the Colorado School of Public Health. This year, she is in Washington, D.C. as the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Health Policy Fellow. She also is the co-founder of the Colorado Health Equity Project. In her book, she claims that nearly 84,000 black and brown lives are lost each year in the U.S. due to health care disparities and unconscious racial and ethnic biases. The book title is Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare, uh, published by New York University Press. Uh, Let's start off with you telling me and telling us why you got started with this. And, and I know you have a background in health and you work in health, but why did you pick this topic? Tom, thanks for the question. I picked the topic for two reasons. I've been uh, working in health, as you say, for quite a while, but I've also been working in law for quite a while. And when I look at the disparities problem, specifically that problem that relates to racial and ethnic minorities, I regard it as a justice issue. And so bringing and combining the problem of 84,000 unnecessary deaths due to health disparities together with legal solutions was my motivation for writing the book. Well, I, I saw that in in reading through the book, uh, Sometimes people just concentrate on the problem, and you certainly do that and document it by even going back to colonial days. But you also spend a, a large part of the bo- book talking about solutions, and, and that's unusual. Well, I felt as though there has been a number of really very fine books um, copious numbers of articles, and lots and lots of conferences talking about the existence of the health disparities problem. In fact, at the highest level of government, we have been spending really literally billions of dollars on this problem for the past 25 years. And so my feeling at this juncture is 
that I would like to point to the very hard parts of the problems that are not being discussed, come up with some very practical solutions for them, even though, again, the conversation is going to be very difficult. We have to be willing to talk about race and ethnicity and discrimination in healthcare. Well, let's let's start that conversation. And as you mentioned, eighty-three to eighty-four thousand black and brown lives are lost each year due to, as you define it, healthcare disparities. So let's let's use that term and and start with that. How do you define healthcare disparities? Healthcare disparities are differences in care and treatment that are due to race and ethnicity, not to clinical or other justifiable or medically supported differences. So they're avoidable and unjustifiable differences in care due to race and ethnicity. And as you define it, you say that this is a problem of physicians, institutional providers, and even patients. I wasn't clear how you involved the patients in this. Could you explain? Of course. First, let's talk about what implicit bias is just briefly. Lots of people know, in fact, uh, uh, during the presidential debate, the term came up. And so it's in the public discourse, and I think that's great. It has to be distinguished, first of all, from racism. Racism is intentional prejudice and bigotry. Implicit bias, on the other hand, is unintentional. Unintentional stereotyping, unintentional prejudices, which take over automatically and control people's judgment and thinking. Everybody has it. You and I have them, Tom, and we have them simply because we get information that is called social knowledge by psychologists, and that social knowledge is coming from the political discourse, the news we hear, the experiences we had as a child. It comes from stories that we've heard from others. Um, And these prejudices are formed and then involuntarily inform what doctors, institutions, and others do, especially in healthcare. Now, when you say what they do, it influences what they do. Do uh, they not advance certain treatments that they would if a person was white or, or majority uh, race? Would, would they, uh, uh, how, how does that play out exactly? Well, let me play it out um, using patients and doctors' biases and how they interact with one another. Okay. In the book, I suggest there are about six different ways that these biases play out, but we'll use two. One, on the one hand, conduct and communication by physicians with their patients, and the second, on the other hand, conduct and communication by patients with their physicians. So a hypothetical example would be, I am, Tom, an African-American woman, and I walk in, and you're my physician. Mm -hmm. You're a white man. Right. Because you have had these experiences throughout your lifetime, you immediately identify me unintentionally with a category of people that you've heard about, read about, thought about, and stored knowledge about unconsciously, unintentionally. You retrieve that information and begin to speak with me 
the data shows in shorter sentences, making less eye contact with me, perhaps dominating the conversation and asking fewer questions of me. When I answer those questions, now you're my doctor, Tom, remember in this hypothetical, when I answer those questions as your patient, there's lots of empirical data from social scientists that tell us you don't credit those answers with the same level of gravity and confidence that you might credit those answers if I were an Afri- if I were not an African American woman. Now, do you do this because you are racist? No, you do this because of the accumulation of experiences that you've had that have suggested to you, even if you don't believe it. And Tom, there's some data that says, especially if you don't believe it especially if you are an egalitarian, well-meaning, well-intentioned person, like most physicians are, right. like most nurses are, especially if you don't mean it, it will be completely involuntary that you don't make the same kind of eye contact. In fact, we even have data to show that your clinical visit with me will be shorter on average. Now then let's switch to the patient. I, too, have had experiences, and I'll share one with you. Last month, really just a couple of weeks ago, I, um, I'm a runner, and I'm training for a race, so I run early in the morning before work. I called a cab um, with one of this, the Lyft or Uber services, and uh, I ran and got some, 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 some fruit and got in the cab. And the cab driver turned around and looked at me and said, Oh, you're going to Virginia. Now, mind you, as you and I know, if you use Uber, you have to put in your address. Right. He looked at me and he said, oh, you're going to Virginia? I've been driving all night. I can't take you. And I said, well, you have to take me, thinking at that moment that I just had to get to the start point because my my group was leaving. Right. Um, He turned around and he canceled the ride with me in the cab and said, get out of my cab. So, again, at this point, I'm old enough to know that I'm sensing something more than just he doesn't want to go to Virginia is going on. But here's the rub, Tom. I didn't know whether I was truly a victim of racial discrimination, explicit bias, or a victim of unconscious bias. But here's the effect that it had on me. I went two or three days before I told anybody, and when I did, at the prompting of, a, of, a, of another Lyft driver, I called Lyft, and they asked me what happened. The minute I opened my mouth, I broke down in tears. Now, this is the stress, the impact, the deleterious effect on my health that this incident had. And a patient who has had similar experiences will be carrying that same stress in his or her physical body and mental expectations. So back to our hypothetical time, if we're having this conversation, you're my doctor, I'm your patient, and I get the sense that you're not making eye contact with me, and I get the sense that you remind me of this unpleasant experience that I had, guess what I'll do? I will react similarly. When you ask how patients are implicitly biased, I might not give you full confidence. I might not give you full information about my background. I might not be forthcoming with the kind of information that's really important to you making medical decisions. And we do have data that suggests after I leave, if I sense or perceive 
that you remind me of that automobile experience I just described, that Lyft driver I just described, I might not come back. I might not adhere to your medical recommendations. I might not follow up. And in fact, that is one of the ways that both patients and physicians have implicit bias that has a detrimental effect on health outcomes for minority patients. Let's take our hypothetical one step further, and let's say that in our hypothetical, you had to be hospitalized. Now we're dealing with an institution. Is this compounded through the institution? Very good question. I think it is, and I want to really be very, very clear, um, jumping to the end and maybe a little ahead of your, your question. I think the solution to this problem lies with institutional incentives, not blaming individuals like doctors, nurses, PAs, physicians, and so forth. I really do believe it's an institutional problem. But institutions have the ability to collect data and see where there are patterns of discrimination occurring, even though they're unintentional. They'll be able to collect data and see patterns of treatment services that are being disparately offered to some and not all populations. They'll be able to see where otherwise race-neutral policies, for example, we reserve beds for people who are um, aligned with certain health plans, or we give admissions uh, privileges to physicians from this geographical but not that geographical area. There will be race-neutral criteria, policies that the administration of an institution have um, instituted that have disparate effects. And just as we held physicians' institutions liable for HIPAA violations and made the institution responsible for training and catching violations of that federal statute, it's my objective to change the law and policies so that institutions, hospitals, health plans, and other organizations take responsibility for combating implicit bias in healthcare. Let's step back just a, a moment, if we could, and and your your premise is that this is based on on race, and certainly in in the book it, it's proven that that's the case. Uh, Let's talk about socioeconomic uh, imbalances and, and class imbalances. Uh, is it the same to somebody who's poor as it's somebody who's black? There is some overlap, but the overlap is not complete. And by that I mean there are certain types of biases that we have seen among individuals that is purely based on socioeconomic class. I am not able to communicate with you because we didn't go to similar schools. We don't have the same level of education. I suspect that you don't have the resources I have. We don't speak, run, and enjoy the same social circles. That's socioeconomic discrimination. But I really want to be clear, Tom, that I am in this book really most focused on discrimination that remains even after we control for socioeconomic status. Okay. So there are plenty of studies that tell us that when we control for income and education, 
there is still disparity that is specifically attributable to race. May I give you an example? Sure. One of the most important indicators for health outcomes or the health of a population is infant mortality. And in this country, I, I think it's well known that African-American mothers lose their children to infant mortality at more than twice the rate as white mothers do. Now, infant mortality statistics typically improve as education improves and as income increases. However, we have seen that the disparity between white mothers and black mothers and the numbers of infant mortality or the rate of infant mortality that they suffer do not improve when education and income are taken into account. In fact, a middle-class mother whose income is somewhere between fifty and $75,000 still experiences income, uh, infant mortality at about twice the rate of a mother who is white wow. and below the poverty line. Similarly, a mother who is African-American and has more than a college education still experiences a higher infant mortality rate than white mothers who don't have a high school education. And so what I'm saying, Tom, is that race as race, race qua race, ethnicity qua ethnicity, and it's different. Race and ethnicity are different. We don't have great data telling us how different they are, but they are different. So I'll focus my comments on African-American women because we have a very solid base of information. African-American women experience infant mortality no matter their education, no matter their income, because of their race at almost twice the rate of white women in this country. So it's race, not socioeconomic status that I'm hoping to address with the solutions in this book. We'll be back after this message. This program is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. The Scripps College offers the foundation for individuals seeking to blend creativity and practice so that graduates have the freedom to direct their skills and move the world forward. The Scripps faculty takes a multidisciplinary approach to academic, professional, and social growth so that graduates have relentless optimism to navigate the changing media environment. The Scripps College of Communication is one of the most comprehensive colleges of communication in the country and was named a Center of Excellence in Ohio in 2010. It's proud to showcase the Stephen L. Schoonover Center for Communication, the brand-new facility that opened in 2015. State-of-the-art laboratory spaces and flipped classrooms are just two of the many features in this new building. Learn more about the Scripps College of Communication at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Before we get to the solutions, the numbers I found to be staggering and alarming. You mentioned nearly 84,000 lives lost each year. Now, you compound that year after year after year. Why are we just addressing this? Why has this not been addressed years ago? when we're dealing with those kind of figures? I want to 
tell you that I really think the problem is because what we've done um, to date has been well-intentioned and we thought was going to work. So uh, the Affordable Care Act extended health insurance to 20 million Americans. African Americans disproportionately benefited from that act. I mean, the number of uninsured decreased greatest among African American and Latino populations. And we thought this was an access problem. So, Tom, I will say it's not that we've been ignoring it. It's that the low-hanging fruit, if you will, right. that had to do with access, that had to do with cultural competence, that had to do with improving some data collection and improving some policies, we've, we've really addressed those. What we see remaining are the thornier problems, one of which I submit has to do with unconscious racism, and the word itself makes us scared. So why haven't we solved this part of the puzzle? Because racism is hard to talk about. And we don't want to admit that our medical care system, which is populated largely by people who are not only well-intentioned, they're caregivers, they are people who think about data objectively, who are scientists, who are dispassionate, and certainly don't wake up in the morning and ask themselves, how am I going to be a prejudice bigot. That's not why this persists. So I'm hoping to have the conversation about race discrimination in a fashion that takes away the blame, takes away the finger pointing and the negativity, and recognizes that implicit biases are ubiquitous. Race is, is just such a difficult issue for us to to talk about, and and I have difficulty understanding that uh, in 2016 we're still having this difficulty. I mean, I I was raised back in the 60s and and 70s, and 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 I thought by 2016 we'd be finished with this, but but it seems to me and maybe I'm overreacting, that we haven't even started in some areas. Well, Tom, I think your question reflects one of the reasons we find how difficult this part of the disparities problem has been. It feels like we haven't made progress, and God knows we've tried so hard. That's very frustrating. And so our collective frustration, I think, builds up, and we, we turn away and look for other problems to solve. Here's what I would suggest. Racism has morphed. It has fundamentally changed so that the tools we used in the 60s and the 70s to address explicit prejudice, mm -hmm. to address segregation in healthcare, when we literally put a whites-only and a colored-only sign over wards in hospitals right. or parts of the healthcare system in the throughout the system. Those segregation days are over. We have made progress, but so has racial discrimination. It's made progress also. It has morphed into an unconscious, unintentional form that takes all of us by surprise, both in its intensity and in its impact, because in fact, its impact is as pernicious 
as the impact of segregation and outright bigotry. Well, let's, on that note, let's move to solutions. <laughs> Great <laughs> be, idea. Be, because uh, I'm, I'm still weighing what, what you said. I, I have no basis to disagree with it, but I'm still disheartened. So let me move to something more positive, and that is the, the area of solutions. Now, in your book, you talked about the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, even going back to that had some tools that we may not be using fully. And then you combine that with the Affordable Care Act to say that we have even more tools. So talk to us about your solutions for this. Sure. And I can do that by segueing into some good news about implicit bias. I know it's very disheartening to hear that um, we've morphed into this form of, of, of implicit or unconscious racism um, being the source of lots of the disparities that I'm pointing out in the book. Let me give you the encouraging piece of news that these implicit biases are malleable. Now, I use the word malleable because social psychologists use that word, but in common parlance, it simply means, Tom, we can do something about it. There's lots of scientific evidence from research that social scientists have done to show that there are steps that we can take that change the influence that our social knowledge or our implicit biases have on us. We can actually change organizational patterns. We can change our decision-making processes. We can retrain ourselves even as individuals. And this is why the solutions in my book are aimed at incentivizing institutions to hold their employees, their staff, and their organizations accountable for making these changes. So some of the things that our tools um, include Title VI and more specifically Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act. Now I'll take each of those in turn. Title VI, the Civil Rights Act, that prohibited discrimination based on race, color, and national origin is a statute that has the best and highest of principles. But as the courts have interpreted that statute over time, it has been, I would say, neutralized, if not, uh, it's certainly been weakened, if not neutralized, so that it only addresses the old-fashioned form of intentional discrimination and does very little with respect to this new form of unintentional or unconscious discrimination. Under that statute, some of the most powerful tools for dealing with the kind of discrimination for, that is unintentional have actually been stripped away by Supreme Court decisions. Now, I think those decisions are wrong, and my book suggests language that Congress might employ in order to return the statute to its original strength. But that, of course, is a very, what we call in the law, a heavy lift to get Congress to yes. move to revise the statute. Right. Big, big lift. So then the second part of the kinds of solutions that this book suggests have to do with a section of the Affordable Care Act, Section 1557, that creates a civil rights statute that extends to health care organizations specifically. Any health care activity that receives federal funding, that is a recipient of federal financial assistance is covered by this act. 
So then institutions that receive Medicare funding, healthcare exchanges that are federally uh, regulated and financed, um, school health programs, all kinds of health providers and organizations are covered by this new civil rights statute. And Tom, it is a very welcome addition to the civil rights arsenal. It has not only restored the disparate impact claim, which I'd like to explain in a moment, but it is added to the list of prohibited discrimination, sex discrimination, age discrimination. This statute is comprehensive and seeks to really be an important tool for equalizing healthcare in America. Now, the reason I'm so excited about the disparate impact cause of action is because that's the cause of action that I think is most likely to be useful in addressing implicit bias or discrimination that comes from unconscious racism. Right. And and all of this is in place and could be initiated immediately. We don't have to wait on further legislation. No, it's not only in place, but very recently the Department of Health and Human Services just completed a, what's called a final rule for the implementation of Section 1557. It went into effect in July of 2016. We now have a range, a full complement of tools that advocates can use to change the social norm. And that's really the objective, Tom. We're not looking to sue people up and down the wazoo and get them to act properly. We don't win hearts and minds that way. But we do change the social norms when the law says we no longer tolerate on any level the kind of discrimination that results in disparities in the healthcare industry. And so Section 1557 has several tools. Of course, it has the litigation avenue that I've described, and that is what I call the nuclear option. We can file a discrimination claim in federal or state court citing Section 1557 violations on the basis of race, discrimination, or uh, ethnicity discrimination, as I've um, outlined in the book. However, we could do other kinds of intermediate causes of action as well. Administratively, there are complaints that can be filed with the Department of Health and Human Services simply by going online and filing an electronic complaint that will trigger an investigation and perhaps a negotiated settlement that could result in changes in policy in that institution, setting examples for other institutions as well. These kinds of tools really only have to be used effectively in some very important leading cases before the message is sent out loud and clear that just as we change the social norm with respect to explicit racism, after Brown versus Board of Education, there was lots of resistance, but you and I agree today that most Americans are absolutely opposed to overt racial discrimination. Right. I think a few leading cases some very successful negotiated settlements, some complaints administratively um, uh, resolved using Section 1557 will change the social norm with respect to unconscious or unintentional discrimination as well. I am noting a 
perhaps strange marriage here between disciplines. And I, I want to end by you talking about that just a bit. We've got a meld here, it seems to me, between social science, social psychology, and law, all of that working together. I, am, am I correct in my observation? You absolutely are. You absolutely are, Tom. And, the, and I really appreciate that because one of the objectives of the book is to appeal to health providers who are dedicated to evidence-based medicine um, to practice evidence-based policymaking. Uh, likewise, I'd like to appeal to lawmakers to practice evidence-based lawmaking. The evidence from social science is clear. Um, I would argue it's copious. We have enough of it so that we can certainly initiate some very significant changes in policy and practice. And I think that the time is now. Dana, Bowen, Matthew, thank you so much. Best of luck with your book. I know it's just out. I, I hope it uh, is, is read by a lot of people who can make a difference. I thank you, Tom, for the opportunity to talk with you about it. Today, we've been talking to lawyer and author Dana Bowen Matthew about her new book, Just Medicine, A Cure for Racial Inequality in American Healthcare. This podcast is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our audio engineer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum at iTunes Podcast, Google Play, or at NPR One. We welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through iTunes. If you have questions or comments about our podcast, please direct them to me via email at hudson at ohio.edu. That's hudson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu.